From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower. This week in Huntington Beach, California at the BSR Conference. On this week's edition, companies respond to California's new chemical labeling law. Home Depot constructs its own chemical policy. A conversation with Amory Lovins 35 years later. And a conversation with BSR's Aaron Kramer 25 years later. Give them an inch and they'll take a milestone this week on 350. It's October 27th, 2017. Welcome to this week's episode of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower, and the other side of the USA is my colleague and friend, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. Great to talk to you again, as always. You are in California, Southern California. What are you doing down there? Sweating for one. It's 104 degrees. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it's a dry heat, so it's okay. But as I said at the top of the show, this is uh, the BSR 25th conference. BSR, the organization, of course, started off as Business for Social Responsibility. And, um, you know, it's still, after 25 years, the only conference I continue to go to every year. Some of the others I go and drop in and out of, but here's here's my claim to fame. Have you ready? I am the only person who's been to all 25 BSR conferences. <gasps> Gasp. That is amazing. Actually, kudos to you. I guess. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, and, and part of that, the reason for that is that um, BSR was founded in 1993, and that year was their very first conference. And I, within weeks of their being founded uh, by Ben and Jerry's and and Stonyfield Farm and a bunch of companies of that, those values driven companies of the day, I was contacted and asked to help uh, to write a uh, a book. I had just written a book called The E Factor, which was one of the first framing books on corporate environmental responsibility. And they said, you know, we need to do that on corporate social responsibility. So in 1994. Uh, my book came out. It was called Beyond the Bottom Line, Putting Social Responsibility to Work for Your Business in the World. And it was by Joel McCower and Business for Social Responsibility. Um, and, and so I've had a relationship with BSR ever since. And Aaron Kramer, who ascended to uh, run the to be the CEO and president of BSR uh, in the mid-ish, or late, late 90s, I forget the exact year. He'd been with the organization originally running its human rights uh, program, and I are, are good friends, and we've been you know, co-conspiring or at least sharing war stories for a long, long time. So it's really a pleasure, and I had the great good fortune to be on stage and honored not just because of I've been to 25 BSR conferences, but also sort of to connect back to the beginnings of BSR and to talk about that first conference. And there's actually a pretty good story about that. I'm curious, though, what's changed in those 25 years? I mean, what's the same and what's really changed? As far, I mean, obviously, there's probably a lot more people now, but, you know, how does, how does the sentiment, how does the, uh, the mood uh, differ now versus 25 years ago? Yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, there's a, a, sort of a two answer, the good news answer and the bad news answer. And in some ways, it's, it's changed transformed dramatically in some ways it hasn't trans, uh, transformed all that much the, the, but the good news is better than the bad news the, the 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 there's still a lot of companies who see CSR as a philanthropic thing or a community thing they still talk in the old speak of doing well by doing good which is 
fine, but it's not really what this is all about. You know, at the leadership, there's now, I mean, Brad Smith, the um, president of, of Microsoft and chief legal counsel, I believe is his title, gave this amazing, amazing keynote speech about what they're doing around literacy and, and, and digital access and privacy and taking political stands uh, on things like DACA and gender equality and LGBTQ issues, and, you know, and real leadership, and but aggressive leadership and even determined, angry at times about, you know, challenging and saying, you know, if they want to deport the, I forget, 40 or 50 DACA uh, uh, people, uh, employees at Microsoft, they're going to have to go through us. And that means the legal team, mm-hmm. that means a whole lot of, you know, real leadership. And there's lots of examples of that. And so... You know, we've come a long way, uh, and yet there's still a lot of companies that are new to this and struggling and trying to get out of the reputational piece of this and a few what I would call random acts of sustainability. Um, <laughs> good things, but not you know necessary, but but highly insufficient. Um, and so there's always, and that's the same in 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 our world of green business and sustainable business. I mean, they're they're pretty much pretty closely aligned, although we have much more of an emphasis on environmental and their focus at BSR is much broader. Um, but it's really remarkable to see what's going on. And of course, the the issue has gotten much more global. I mean, there were at this conference, there were, I think, every continent except probably Antarctica is represented, but also there, you know, BSR itself has has uh, several offices in in Europe and eight and China in particular, and robust programs there working with supply chain partners. You know, back in 1993 when this started, unless you were a footwear and apparel company, which had gotten some uh, you know public blowback on um, sweatshops and and factory conditions, most companies didn't pay a lot of attention to their supply chains in terms of their sustainability work. They were working within their fence line of their company. That's obviously changed. First of all, companies have done much of what can be done within a fence line. And so now they have to, if they really want to take on the issues that in which they impact, they have to go to their supply chain. So that's really a global conversation now. A lot of conversation on issues that weren't there in 92, 93 on, you know, the importance of educating girls and women, gender-based equality, all kinds of things that are being discussed here at this event. I want to go back to Microsoft for a moment. Um, because I think the thing that really changed there, I, I, and I was actually at the conference um, where this happened, but uh, there's a Grace Hopper conference every year, and it, it focuses, the, the, the attendees are primarily women um, who are in careers in, in computers, um, technology, STEM, you know, the sort of the STEM area. And, and um, Satya Nadala, the CEO of Microsoft, went to that conference and made one of the most misguided statements he could regarding um, uh, women's salaries and the rights that women had at Microsoft. And boy, did he get woke. The backlash was just amazing. And he took action. And I think one of the, the, the things that I've seen really happen at Microsoft over the last two years is they have become, like I said before, woke. He, he you know, Mr. Nadala acknowledged his, his gaffe, if you will, he, he, and, and took action. And so um, I, I think that sort of CEO level, you know, revelation and awareness and, and, um, and being, being woke up is, is so important. Um, and I, I would love to see more companies wake up their CEOs. Well, Microsoft is a great example. And there's a lot more of these. While I was here, I had a chance to uh, be on stage with Aaron Kramer, but I pulled him aside afterwards just to get some of his 
Great thoughts. I mean, Aaron's one of the most uh, thoughtful and articulate and, uh, you know, just, I think, insight, visionary people in the world of sustainability these days. And just want to get his little perspective on, on, on where we are. So here's what he had to say. Aaron, first of all, congratulations. This is such a great moment for BSR. Well, thank you. We're very proud of, of what we've accomplished. We know that it's come through partnership with, with many, including Green Business and, and you, Joel. Um, and we're looking resolutely to the future because we think that time is now uh, to capture all the change that's happening in the world and leverage it for more outcomes that are really important. In your opening uh, remarks on uh, Tuesday night, uh, you talked about sort of three directions that sustainability needs to take. Uh, I thought that was really interesting. Can you just give us the, the short version of that? Sure. I mean, based on a lot of the changes that are taking place in the world, some of them explicitly to do with sustainability, some of them not, simply having to do with disruption in business, um, it seems to us that there's a new agenda that's going to be crucially important. More focus on climate resilience, more focus on generating and expanding economic opportunities in the era of automation, uh, and then also looking at how to make sure that technologies are developed and adopted and applied consistent with human rights principles and also basic ethical principles. We think this agenda is an agenda that responds to a fundamentally different set of circumstances and will come to define uh, how well companies are doing on sustainability in the years ahead and how much we achieve the vision of the Paris Agreement, the SDGs, etc. Do you think the way forward is just to keep doing more of the same, or do we need to start thinking differently about how we address sustainability as companies uh, and do something differently? So just as we think a new agenda is in order, a new approach is in order as well. And I actually think we as a community, um, we're challenging the notion of business as usual. We should also challenge the notion of sustainable business as usual. And we need to think about all the bread and butter activities, stakeholder engagement, reporting, materiality analysis, the things that really every company is doing through a different lens, taking advantage of, of new technologies, taking advantage of new, com new modes of communication, communication, and, and actually just asking whether they're fit for purpose and whether they're delivering the goods. I, I think that they are important, but many of these activities have grown stale. So we need to challenge ourselves, just like we're challenging uh, traditional business practices. I love Matt Slaterhausen's uh, uh, former chair of BSR's line about a question of actually about do we uh, think our way into acting differently or do we act our way into thinking differently? I'm not sure I have a question there, Aaron, but it seems like that's in some ways a setup for what needs to happen. Well, so from the vantage point of celebrating our 25th anniversary, I'm very proud of all of the changes that have happened. We've also institutionalized a lot of those challenges, and there's a fine line between embedding uh, those the kinds of activities that I just mentioned into basic business practices and letting them grow stale and not continuing to ask whether they're uh, delivering the goods. And I think the time is right, given that everything is changing in business, to challenge ourselves as well. Well, I love the way you, you're celebrating what's been done and challenging everybody that there's a new way or more ways and uh, think differently and, and, and sustainable business as usual is not necessarily the path forward. So thank you for that and congratulations. Thank you, Joel. I also had a chance to talk with a, a former BSR staffer. They're, they're actually all over the place. Kara Hurst is now at Amazon, but Michael Kabori, in this case, uh, has been vice president of Levi's uh, and for a while, and another just terrific company, but also a great spokesperson. And Michael's seen both sides on the NGO side and the corporate side, and I asked him what he thought about 
where we are. So Michael, in, in your conversation on stage at the event this week, you said something about being more optimistic than you were before. Talk a little bit about that. Well, Joel, I think I've always been what I would call an optimistic pessimist, that there's not enough of us doing as much as we need to do as fast as we need to do it. Uh, but we do it anyway because there's no other choice. It's what we believe in. But yesterday, Al Gore was on stage, and he always shows a lot of slides, but there was one slide that stu stuck out for me, and it was a slide that showed the, the progression of greenhouse gas emissions over the past 20 years, and they have actually started to level off. And it's the first thing I've seen in a long time that gives us hope for the future. So now I think I'm an optimistic optimist. Uh, I'm a little skeptical about that, but we'll see. <laughs> no, I think that's great. Um, you've watched this field unfold. You joined BSR uh, heading the, uh, the human rights program, I believe, uh, back in the late 90s or something. Uh, that? uh, that's right. Actually, Aaron was head of the human rights program. He recruited me into that. So, yes, I was working at BSR with Aaron in the late 90s. And then he ascended to CEO. So how has this the conversation changed? What's the conversation different that you're seeing this year that you couldn't, you just really couldn't have imagined in the late 90s? A couple of things have changed. I think, uh, one, it's become, well, in the late 90s, it was all about companies protecting their reputation. It was a CSR thing, very internally focused and uh, very competitive. Companies were trying to outdo each other on codes of conduct and oh, my program's better than your program. And today there's a real shift. I think some companies like ours, we're still trying to innovate and be better on whatever it is, worker well-being or green chemistry, sustainable raw materials. But now we open source our innovations. We share it with everyone because we want to engage everybody in that system change that's needed. Changing the system is something we only dreamed about 20 years ago. And it goes to the power of partnerships. And one of the things that BSR, I've lauded them for years, is creating these working groups that bring companies together, starting with uh, apparel industry, I think, uh, back in the 90s. I, think, I know Levi's was part of that. Um, that seems to be part of, you know, at BSR's secret sauce. Uh, I would agree. I think industry partnerships, these working groups, collaborations are critical. But as I said this morning, they're only effective if, number one, you move from talking to doing, and number two, if those groups raise the bar rather than lower it or slow things down. So that's, that's the caveat I would put on it. I mean, industry collaboration is great, but we've got to get something done. Well, let me ask you a last question. Where do you think we are in the think-do spectrum? Do you think that, or say-do, I guess, are, are people, uh, companies, you know, doing more than they're saying, saying more than they're doing, or are they, and, and is the doing enough? More companies are doing. There's still too much saying going on. What did uh, one of my colleagues up there say on stage? There's too much blah, blah. <laughs> so there's more talking than doing. I think we need to focus on the doing, and I think we need to raise our sights can't be about incremental change. How do we change the system? I think we, we have critical mass to be able to take that on in a number of areas now. Yeah. Well, Levi's has been saying and doing and showing the way for a while, so thanks for all that good work, and uh, thanks for helping get BSR going in the great direction that it is. Thank you.
So Joel, I know you were somewhere else this week because you gave me a great story lead from it. Um, it had to do with biomimicry and a, and, a, and a bunch of great startups in that field. But where were you and what were you doing? <laughs> uh, I was I had the great good fortune to be uh, not a judge. I was actually a uh, expert panelist at the Biomimicry Global Design Challenge. So biomimicry is this field of nature-inspired design, uh, mimicking critters, as we like to say, uh, that are showing the way in terms of how nature takes on uh, some of the, the many, many amazing things that it does. This is based on the book, the uh, 1997 book called Biomimicry, Design Inspired by Nature, I think is the subtitle. Uh, and this competition is uh, for a $100,000 prize uh, put up by the Ray C. Anderson Foundation. Now, Ray Anderson, most people know, was the founder and CEO of uh, Interface, the carpet company, and that created a, if not a billion dollar, a hundreds of millions of dollar line of carpet called Entropy based on the design of the forest floor, and, and Ray was just a great, great champion of biomimicry. He passed a number of years ago, but his family uh, created this uh, annual prize called the Ray of Hope Prize uh, for the Biomimicry Institute. And so it was it was really, really terrific to be able to see what's going on and to uh, comment uh, uh, you know, to the uh, entrepreneurs that were presenting there. And I have to say that the, the, the company that won the $100,000 was the one I would have picked. It was just this great company called Nexloop. It's N-E-X-L-O-O-P. And what do they do? What do they? I mean, like, why? Why were they so cool? <laughs> well, they, they, are, they created a way to pull water out of the air, specifically for urban agriculture settings. Uh, so the hyper-local hyper -local water capture and storage in urban settings so it's mimicking uh, a number of critters um, from beetles to spiders and spider webs and other things that, that literally pull water out of fog and just the moisture that's in the air and, and, and funnels it to uh, make it available. In this case, using it for uh, container-based indoor ag systems or, or other kinds of uh, vertical farms, greenhouses, container farms that are popping up everywhere. And they have a, pro a product called AquaWeb that just is a really innovative technology that collects, filters, stores, and distributes atmospheric moisture. So I just said this is the, to me, epitomized taking nature's brilliance and turning it into to a product. I'll just read from the, this is a, mimicking orb weaver spider webs, how they collect fog, fog from the air, how drought-tolerant plants like the crystalline ice plant store water, and how fungi like the Jersey cow mushroom, you must know that, where you live. Uh, I think they mean Jersey in England, <laughs> Okay, Joel. all right. The Jersey <laughs> cow mushroom distributes water, and then how the dwarf honeybee's hexa hexagonal nest structure uh, holds holds water efficiently. I mean, it's 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 brilliant. So, congratulations to uh, the team Next Loop, and just had a few minutes with Janine. Janine's an old friend of mine. Uh, we I used to be on her board, and I pulled her aside uh, just as we uh, ended our uh, the program, and just again asked her what's going on out there. So, Janine, first of all, just yeah. what, what do you feel at tonight? This, this must be really just the proud aunt. Yeah, I am. I'm the fairy godmother. Yeah, the proud fairy godmother. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's amazing to watch what comes from the process of looking to the natural world 
and then being mentored not just by nature, but in this case, there are also these design challenge folks are mentored by, by business folks. You know, they're learning how to do business plans. I mean, what we really need to do is uh, to make sure that sustainable innovations are commercialized. And we need to also prove that nature-inspired innovations are both more novel and that they have a really whole system sustainability component to them. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to, obviously, they're going to be sustainable, right, solutions. That, that's what we're looking for. But we're also trying to demonstrate a process of innovation that we think, you know, looks at 3.8 billion years and 10 to 30 million species, right? So there's, a, there's this process um, that's not being used enough right now, nature-inspired innovation. And, and uh, so we're, we're, trying, we're trying to demonstrate that um, all the way from the inspiration from the natural world all the way through commercialization. But the other thing that I see here is that it, you're not just uh, looking at environmental innovations. There's social innovations here yeah. as well and, and yeah. solving social problems like hunger uh, and, and food waste that, uh, yeah, environmental, but also improving lives. And I think that's sort of a part of biomimicry that you don't talk about enough. No, you're right. You're right. It's um, actually every single one of these designs, um, uh, the finalists, had a dual track for their inventions. One was selling in the, in the developed world, and one was for the developing world. And that, you know, that was just a, an ethic that, that permeated all of them. Um, and, you know, I mean, it was, it was a look at, at uh, environmental problems like, you know, food waste and its contribution as the third largest contributor to, to, to climate change, um, but, but also to just the social issues of hunger and how are we going to grow enough to feed these coming billions Right? And how are we going to, it's not just how are we going to feed ourselves, it's how are we going to feed ourselves while feeding the planet, yeah. you know, while healing the planet, right? And so it's this, we need living systems thinking in order to tackle a, a, a problem like food systems, because food systems are inherently living systems. So it just makes sense to, to tie those two together. There's, there's got to be patterns, principles, chemical recipes... Uh, approaches, even strategy, even ecosystem strategy approaches, which you saw here, that lead to more sustainable production of food and distribution of food and, uh, you know, the use of, of food waste and residue back into, as nature does, growing food, right? So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's exciting for me to see. Well, congratulations on all you've created here. It's a, it's a fun night, and I was, I was pleased to be part of it. Joel, thank you. Thank you for always being part of it. So while you were on the road, I was editing a whole bunch of stories <laughs> for the site. And um, I have to point out to uh, a sort of a theme that was emerging this week, um, Joel, the, we, we published a piece, P&G S.C. Johnson back California chemical labeling law. And so what's going on is that uh, Jerry Brown, as part of his uh, a whole slew of uh, bills that he signed earlier in October, uh, signed something called the Cleaning Product Right to Know Act. 
So basically, the, the state is requiring companies to disclose chemicals. So anything that's in a commercial or household cleaning product or a, a floor polish or automotive lubricant or products that, that an auto body shop might use, they have to tell uh, the public, general public, what, what's in them. Companies need to declare them online, which is something that actually New York also does. But starting in 2021, they'll also have to put that information on their labels, which is a pretty um, dramatically different move um, when you look at other states. And one that, that, as I mentioned before, actually had the backing of industries. So Procter & Gamble, Seventh Generation, um, The Honest Company, they all were part of this, this law that came together and was signed a couple weeks ago in your state. Yeah, California has been showing the way in a long time. We've had almost uh, some people's uh, in dismay that you go into a – every store now has a sign if they have any of, I don't know, hundreds of chemicals that they're used or that are used anywhere in the store or in their products. They have to display some things. And so there is a bit of a nanny state thing going on here. But I have to say that this is uh, you know driving companies like PNGs because you can't just create things for the California market to disclose chemicals and things that had been opaque to the to the audience and, and in some cases is leading them to say, well – you know, now that we have to disclose this, we probably don't want to be showing that we're using this. Maybe we should find an alternative substance. And that's a really positive thing. Yeah. I think the other thing that's going on that's interesting, and I agree with the nanny state thing, I'm, I'm kind of conflicted on label declarations. Um, but at the same time, I feel that people do have a right to know what's in inside something that they're going to use, you know, what they're inhaling or touching or possibly ingesting. Um and it, it is striking that this is happening now when the federal level policy is, is getting a little bit more uh, cloudy or, or blurry. There's a lot of reevaluation of, of toxic management going on at the EPA right now um, under the new administration. So this is another example, I think, of, of a place where states need to, to focus in on what they feel that their consumers want um, and demonstrate some leadership. So I think this might be something that we see elsewhere, at least at the, if you will, declaration level. I've also noticed, you know, and I'll, I'll just, uh, we were talking uh, last month about some changes that Walmart made to its chemicals policies. But, you know, it's also striking to me that this week, Home Depot, which has been um, also along with many of the other retailers, you know, trying to to proactively manage what's, what's inside their products, they have just announced uh, a new level of certification requirements for the ingredients within their products. They've also are working on kind of to the point of, of what Cal of California is doing things that have indoor air quality implications. They're going to be conducting annual reviews of their product categories to really focus in on, on what's happening. So um, the things that they're managing, if you will, will be paint and, and obviously construction products, if you will, carpet, vinyl, laminate flooring, insulation, they're going to be focusing much more on those product categories and, you know, addressing what's inside. And Anya Hallmeiser, who's, who's done some of our reporting on, on chemicals management in general, she spoke with Ron Jarvis, the vice president of merchandising and environmental innovation, about what's going on there at Home Depot. And uh, I'll let him say, say what's going on in his own words. So here's Ron Jarvis from Home Depot. The new chemical standard and strategy that we have, uh, we've been working on for a few years. And as we look across the category, 
um, not being uh, a retailer that has a lot of consumables like uh, baby products and cosmetics and products that go in me, on me, uh, we know that our biggest environmental impact for the consumer is probably indoor air quality. It's the floor, the paint, um, the ceiling, the furniture. So a lot of that's indoor air quality emissions. For our broader environmental goals, we do look at product categories and spend a, a lot of time working with our merchants and working with suppliers on ways to improve products so the product that we sell have less of an impact on the environment than standard products. We have an eco-options program that we established in 2007. And the eco-options program, it identifies products that have been proven through third parties to have less of an impact on the environment than the standard products. But what we've done in parallel to eco-options is to also look at product categories that are, are broad categories like paint and, and carpet for two instances and work on reducing the, the types of chemicals that are in those products. They don't automatically become green products. They're not now certified green products. Uh, they don't fit into our eco-options program at this time. Some of them don't. Uh, but we have reduced their impact on the environment. And that's something that um, we've been stressing to our merchants and working on not only buying green products, but greening the products that we buy for the last five years. How will you incentivize your suppliers? Well, fortunately for the Home Depot, we have suppliers, some suppliers that we have dealt with for 30 plus years, and they are true partners. And for most of these changes, we sit down and talk to them, and uh, we say this is some place that uh, we would like to take this product category, or these are uh, moves, changes we'd like to make inside of the assortment, and how can you help us get there? Um, we do not try to go out and source new suppliers to do that for us. We would much rather work with the partners that we have and change the products that we're purchasing. And uh, sometimes it takes weeks, sometimes it takes years. But, um, but giving, and the incentive is that we're doing the right thing, we're creating better products, and we're creating a stronger partnership. And it's important, I think, both for the manufacturer and the retail retailer to know that they're building a stronger partnership by improving the products. What is the incentive that caused this shift, um, you know, deepening your commitment to chemicals management? We have a value wheel that our founders created when they started the company, and part of that is doing the right thing. Um, so we try everything that we do to look at the value wheel and say, are we making the right decisions? And one of the one of the values is doing the right thing. I've been a product merchant for 30 years, and I know that um, if given the right opportunity, suppliers will work with you to improve their products. In most all cases, we can do this without adding an increased burden on the cost of the product to consumers. And once you do it, then you know, I think you're a better company, and you become less of a target. And when you sit down to talk with NGOs or any activist groups, uh, you become a partner at the table instead of a catalyst. 
because in a lot of cases you know as much or more than they do and you've been further down the road that they want to get down than they have. So, um, so it helps in a lot of different negotiations. As a sustainability manager, you have a pretty interesting role, right? And so how do you work with the rest of the other teams in the company? Well, I think we have a, a, an advantage because I've been a merchant and I've been a merchandising vice president. So I have sat in the merchandising and the merchant, the buyer's chairs. So, um, and I've bought or been a, a, a manager over almost every category in the company at one point or other. So we understand the business. We know the suppliers. Um, we have had this position since uh, 2000 in the company, so we now have 17 years under our belt. Uh, we won the President's Award for Sustainability in 1996 from President Clinton, so this isn't new to us. The reason that we won President Clinton's Award for Sustainability was for our involvement in sales of certified wood, and specifically FSC certified wood. So we were one of the first companies to say, Let's produce well-managed, sustainable products from well-managed, sustainable forests. I'm hearing so many about many companies, and I've covered a few too, um, that are introducing more serious uh, chemical supply chain um, management programs and pushing for legislation. What's really going on? Is it a trend? No, I think that it's you know so much of it has to do with social media and the ability to um, to number one get your story out there to say, here's what we've done and here's what we do, uh, it does two things. It, it pre-educates the consumer and then also um, anyone that's trying to do a rack and stack among manufacturers, producers, retailers, once they find that information, they can say, well, here's what I didn't realize that Home Depot was doing in this chemical, but now I know. Um, so I can either give them credit or I can come after them for not doing more. Just transparency as a whole. We've been working for probably 10 years on getting more transparency in for the products, uh, even to the point to where uh, we've worked with suppliers to say, let's come up with a type of nutritional label that you can uh, scan it or look at it online and find out where does the product come from, how much energy does it use, how much water does it use, how far is it shipped, what's the chemicals inside. So um, I think people are just trying to get ahead of that to say, let's not leave information up for um, for the unknown. So we are celebrating another anniversary this week at uh, not, not our own, but uh, one of our longtime partners, uh, Rocky Mountain Institute. Uh, happy anniversary, folks. Happy 35th. Um, but, uh, but seriously, we, we ran two pieces this week um, on what, where they've come from and where they're going. And uh, I, I have to say this was an education for me because um, I have not been blessed to be covering these sorts of issues as long as you, Joel. Um, but I was fascinated to learn a, a lot more about an organization that I've been interacting with a lot on, um, on renewables uh, policy and, and uh, um, adoption at the corporate level. So I, I, I had the pleasure of talking to several of the uh, managing directors to understand more about the transportation program there, about um, you know, all the different programs that, go, that have been going on. 
and I, I kind of, it also helped me frame up that, that the overall mission, which, which at its core level, isn't that different from, from 35 years ago. It's just to drive market driven change in, in the energy systems. And, um, that's a very simple, but very profound mission and, and a big one, <laughs> um, but you have a lot more background on where this this organization is coming from, Joel. Like, like, help me understand why what you know what's different now versus versus when they started. Well, not that much. I mean, the the organization is like BSR, as we were talking earlier, has grown and and focused more. Some of the things they were looking at, uh, they've they've sort of have dropped off, but and to really focus on uh, energy systems, transportation systems, building systems and the grid. But, you know, what they started doing, and they, in this case, were the Lovins, uh, Amory Lovins and his then-wife, Hunter Lovins, who founded this organization uh, back in 1982, uh, in the wake of the 1970s energy crisis. But several years earlier, 1976, he wrote, Amory wrote this remarkable piece in Foreign Affairs magazine called Energy Strategy, The Road Not Taken, where he talked about, uh, introduced this idea of the soft path of energy, which was you know, combining efficiency with a shift to renewable and basically decoupling uh, the growth of energy and the accompanying emissions, which were not yet as much of a concern. It was more energy supply and, and constraints from, from the Middle East, but decoupling energy use with economic growth, which is a radical concept. And everyone said, nah, I don't know about that. But um, that became uh, the North Star uh, of, of uh, RMI as it was founded in uh, Hunter and Amory's uh, home in, in Snowmass, Colorado. And, and it grew over time to become, first of all, that notion caught on. Jimmy Carter at the time, President uh, Jimmy Carter invited uh, Lovins to the Oval Office, and they talked about that, and it became part of sort of the budding energy policy of the United States as it was back in the 70s after the energy crisis. And uh, the organization grew and grew and grew and got more stature and started working with governments around the world and big corporations and, and really just setting the uh, intellectual foundation and the vision for what's possible. And uh, so now the organization works out of a net zero energy building in Basalt, uh, Colorado, not that far from the Snowmass, original Snowmass office. I was uh, there uh, about a year ago when it was still being built, the new the new headquarters, so I haven't seen it finished. And they have offices in Boulder, New York City, Washington, D.C., and Beijing. So yeah, this is uh, 35 years in. They had a big event uh, at in Basalt at their headquarters with people like um, Tom Friedman, who's who's been a big supporter and uh, just uh, a lot of, uh, of of our friends uh, from both the policy and and en- energy worlds. So yeah, it's a, it's a great organization, and, and it's important to note that we have had uh, a growing partnership with them uh, in things like the Reba, the Renewable Energy Business Alliance uh, event that uh, of which RMI is a co-founder at our Verge event this past uh, September. We've had Amory and others uh, on stage at our events, and they bring a level of, as I said, just intellectual innovation and visionary thinking that not many people yet bring. I love the vision that they're currently uh, organizing around, the reinventing fire. And this came through as an organizing construct a couple of years ago. The idea is that we could build a pathway to 158% bigger U.S. economy by 2050 without 
oil, coal, or nuclear energy. So that's the framing mechanism by which they uh, prioritize projects and, and think about the pilots and so forth that they're going to help scale. I spent a lot of time uh, speaking with the current CEO, Jules Kortenharst, about you know exactly that, how they prioritize, right? There's so much to be done. It's very overwhelming. But uh, he has some great advice for other, if you will, for other uh, nonprofit organizations. Uh, one of the big framing things that he that he had to talk about was the idea that it's not just insight that that uh, Rocky Mountain Institute provides, but that it's helping them cities and countries and and companies find projects that could make an impact and that could be scaled. Um, and here are some of my excerpts from my conversation with Jules. It's been a very conscious decision by the Institute, by the, the, the Board of Trustees, by the leadership, by the whole organization to say, insight is critically important. In fact, if you go back to the origins, origins of Rocky Mountain Institute, it was founded on the basis of Amory's fundamental insights about uh, soft energy path that were embedded in his article in Foreign Affairs 40 years ago, that there is an alternative energy future out there and that we can shape that build around energy efficiency and renewables. Um, so insight is still very important for the Institute. But the conclusion we draw um, some years ago is that the urgency of the climate challenge focuses us now on driving impact, on uh, helping to make things happen, accelerate the transition, because we're running out of time. And so in everything we do, we are increasingly now asking the question, how does this insight lead to accelerated deployment of the technologies and the business models and the capital flows that, that create this low carbon energy future uh, that, that the, the planet so desperately needs. The second thing that I'm sort of proud of looking back is that uh, increased focus on impact um, also goes with the idea that we need to do this at scale. We can no longer just do a pilot. We can no longer just have one demonstration project. We need the solutions at scale. And so for that, we need also more, more resources at RMI. So over the course of the last uh, uh, four years, we've grown from 50 people to now uh, 200 colleagues. And, and what has been an unbelievable joy and privilege is to see the passion and the quality uh, of the people that have joined the team. We have grown as an organization geographically. We have now an office in New York and in DC, in, uh, an office in Beijing. We have some people in far-flung places from Europe to Africa. Uh, but the, the common theme across the board is these are really passionate colleagues and these are really high caliber talented individuals and uh, the work that we do can only be done by people giving all their enthusiasm and their insights to the cause that we serve so that has been another important part of uh, of the accomplishments of the last four years
one important uh, main uh, stream of our business that hardly existed uh, four years ago was just sort of emerging, but that now has become a really significant part of our work is our efforts in China. And our efforts in China started with um, helping the Chinese government create an energy model of the Chinese economy and on the basis of that model lay out a pathway for China to be able to uh, hit its uh, commitment under the Paris Agreement of, the, of uh, uh, reducing, uh, turning the trend on carbon emissions latest by uh, 2030. Uh, we actually think that uh, China is now on track to hit that much earlier than anybody thought. Um, our model set 2025, it may be that China is even pacing slightly ahead of that. Um, but above all, it gave the Chinese government the sort of instruments and the tools to think about this in a very structured and rational manner, and now to monitor progress uh, against those, those trajectories. Uh, and out of that work has grown follow-up work with the Chinese electricity sector, follow-up work with the State Planning Commission, the NDRC, on helping cities implement low-carbon plans. So our work in China is certainly something that differentiates the last four years in my mind, and, and that illustrates that shift from uh, not just thought leadership, but then translating that thought leadership into real implementation. There is a big change the moment that the market moves from increasingly lower and lower cost, but still not competitive, to hands down the most cost competitive solution, the more economic solution, and therefore no more question that you would want to deploy that new technology. And one of the things that gives me hope about uh, the pace of the energy transition is that for so many of the technologies we have just passed or we are at the crucial tipping point where the technologies that, that are low carbon move from being slightly more expensive or significantly more expensive to slightly or significantly more cost effective. And nowhere can you see that more clearly in uh, wind and solar, where in windy places, wind is now hands down the most cost-effective way to produce electricity. And in sunny places like the Middle East, um, solar is now the most cost-effective way to produce electricity. And that is spreading very quickly across the globe where those technologies are increasingly uh, the most cost-effective source of power generation. Uh, and it is only a matter of time before anywhere around the world those technologies outcompete on a pure cost basis coal or natural gas or any other form of power generation. What I worry about is that as positive as that, that sounds, as upbeat as we can be about the fact that the technologies of the future are clearly the low-carbon technologies and that any uh, business leader or, for that matter, 
almost every government official will get that. Nobody, nobody in their right minds would think that it is time to revive the coal industry, right? There is, there is, I think, probably no country in the world where the political leadership would say uh, we should get back into the coal business. Well, maybe there's one, but that should be an exception. Um, uh, but, but so we will see uh, the, the, the transition accelerate. But we are still dealing with the largest sector in the economy worldwide. We are talking about the combined energy and mobility sector, uh, wrapping there the built environment. You look at how much energy represents as the total of, of economies around the world. It's somewhere between 20 and 30% of every economy. So that means that we are trying to change a system that is very, very large. So even if the economic errors are all pointing in the right direction, the amount of assets, the amount of infrastructure, the amount of the economy that needs to be transformed is enormous. And even with all the wind in the back of the economy and lots of policy support, that is going to be a hard battle, let alone uh, the few places in the world where the policy support is not there. Are we hitting the pace that was laid out in Reinventing Fire US when it comes to continuing to drive energy efficiency and scaling up uh, renewable electricity? In those two very narrow definitions, yes, we're on track. In fact, we've just recently done some analysis that shows that the amount of energy we need per unit of GDP continues to fall in line with Amory's original vision and in line with reinventing fire. And we are also seeing that the, the, re, the deployment of solar and wind is actually tracking quite nicely with what we laid out in reinventing fire. But the reality is much more needs to happen. We need to decarbonize heavy industry. We need to see trucking and shipping and aviation move to low carbon. We need to see this uh, scale to other countries like China and India, where we are seeing tremendous momentum, fortunately. But then we also need to see it happening in countries like Vietnam and the Philippines and Thailand and Malaysia and Turkey, where momentum is not yet fast enough. So if you look, take the narrow lens of what we have seen happening at the moment in renewable deployment and energy efficiency in the United States, there's some cause for hope. But we need to see those, those narrow examples extrapolate across countries and across industry sectors, and we need to see that happen everywhere around the world at scale. And uh, it gets harder and harder because every time we want to double the installed capacity, the base is bigger and bigger. So we, we need to do more, we need to do it faster, and that is not an, an, an easy challenge. Meanwhile, I had a conversation of my own with Amory, uh, who I just love talking with. It's just always so interesting to talk about 35 years, but also just less what they did but than what they learned. And one of the things I asked them, I'll play a clip now, is, is why the notion of energy and security beyond this, having secure energy in the Middle East 
why the notion of uh, of being more secure with a you know a clean and resilient and distributed energy system? Why that's not commonplace? Why we're not really thinking in those terms? Here's what he had to say. I was just rereading some Senate testimony that I was asked to do on 7 March 2006. Jim Wolsey and I were were asked to talk about what is energy security, who's responsible for it, and where you where do you get it? And I started off, of course, pointing out that energy security is not just about assured supplies of oil. And indeed, it is not at all the case that foreign energy is insecure and domestic energy is secure. In fact, a lot of our domestic energy is at least as insecure as what we get through the Strait of Hormuz. A lot of our federal energy policy has periodically been about pushing the most insecure sources, like the Trans-Alaska Pipeline, which is an all-American Strait of Hormuz. Jim Woolsey has actually testified to that effect in the House as an oil-friendly Oklahoman, saying this is an extremely vulnerable link, and from a national security point of view, it's the last thing you'd want to do, even if it had good economics, which it doesn't. And I remember in that hearing, Senator Murkowski, uh, Lisa Murkowski, objected to our mentioning the study that Hunter and I did for the Pentagon in 81 and published as a book in 82 called Riddle Power Energy Strategy for National Security. That had a foreword by Admiral Tom Moore, who was President Nixon's chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, and by Jim Woolsey, who had been at the time Undersecretary of the Navy and, of course, later was Director of Central Intelligence and a a great ally on these issues. And uh, the senator objected to our citing in 2006 a reference from 1981 or two. And Jim and I said almost in unison, but Senator, nothing has changed except that cyber vulnerabilities have been added. That is still the case today. If I'm away from home, since my home works with or without the grid, I'm always surprised when I wake up in the morning and the lights are still on. You're surprised? Yeah, because the system is so vulnerable to physical and cyber attack, let alone natural disaster, as we've lately seen, that uh, I think we've been exceptionally lucky so far, and I don't see how we can go on being lucky indefinitely. As Jim is fond of saying, maybe he got it from you, the grid was built for just in time, but not just in case. Oh, I, that's not from me, but it's it's very well said. And, you know, we found in brittle power that a handful of people could turn off two-thirds of the oil and gas supplies to the eastern states in one evening without leaving Louisiana. But we also found the grid was more vulnerable than that, and it still is. So now the, some of those chickens are coming home to roost in Puerto Rico, in the wildfires of Northern California, you know, Texas, Florida, et cetera. And, and many other places around the world. Are you seeing this as an opportunity, as a teachable moment? Very much so, if those making the decisions care to listen. I've had, of course, many unsuccessful attempts to raise the energy security and resilience issues over the last, let's see, 36 years. And other than the Department of Defense, most audiences have not been very receptive because it contradicts what their view of what they want to build. But to give an example of why this matters in the say, Puerto Rican and Caribbean context, where we, we've had a quite extensive effort with Carbon War Room, now part of RMI and Sir Richard Branson, to uh, switch from diesel to distributed renewables on the islands. 
I wrote an essay for the theater commanders in Iraq and Afghanistan in uh, 2010, and it's posted on, on our website, rmi.org. The title is Efficiency and Micropower for Reliable and Resilient Electricity Service, colon, an intriguing case and study from Cuba. And I've not been to Cuba, but I had good information from people who, who know it well about how in 2005, Cuba had 224 serious blackout days. In 2006, it had three. In 2007, it had zero. And in 2008, two hurricanes in two weeks shredded their eastern grid, but they still sustained vital services just as they did in recent weeks when the same thing happened again. There was immense destruction, but things like hospitals kept working. What did they do to create this extraordinary increase in resilience? Well, they started with efficiency with a shipload full of Chinese export credit financed very efficient appliances comparable to good energy star models of things like uh, lights, fans, refrigerators, rice cookers, pressure cookers, and pumps. Those were mandatorily deployed all over the country. They switched to a steeply inverted tariff. They had a major public education campaign about La Revolución Energética. And most importantly, they switched the architecture of the grid from extremely centralized, based on 11 geriatric Soviet heavy oil plants, to much more distributed, they shut roughly half those plants and connected as netted islandable microgrids. That means that each locality normally interchanges electricity freely through the big grid with other areas, but if the big grid fails, then each locality isolates fractally, meets critical loads as best it can with local resources, and will then later detect, resync, and reconnect if the grid comes back. Yeah. In other words, it's exactly what the Pentagon doctrine has now said we should do for all our military bases so that their stuff works. And the the misfortune Cuba had when they were doing this in 2005, 6, 7 is that they couldn't get into the long waiting list for wind and solar, which at the time was still quite expensive, because everybody else was ahead of them in the queue. So they bought a bunch of mainly Caterpillar diesel generators, and they weren't worried about the oil because uh, Chavez would give them Venezuelan oil in exchange for doctors. That arrangement, of course, is now fraying with events in Venezuela, and they are now gradually switching to wind and solar, which is where they wanted to be in the first place. But the combination of efficiency, I believe some demand response, and especially the resilient grid architecture produced the kind of result that we could and should have had in the Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico. So yeah, from uh, the Middle East to Puerto Rico, um, there's just a lot to learn, as Amory points out. And uh, once again, congratulations, the Rocky Mountain Institute. Um, look forward to continuing to working with you all and continuing to help spread your great work. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350, and you'll find more about the organization's stories and events and other, other things we've mentioned in this episode. And while you're there, look for a link to our new podcast, Center Stage. It's the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. Send us email, comments, ideas, rants, whatever, at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. 
and thanks to GreenBiz 350 director, Stephanie Joyce, and our intrepid managing editor, Elsa Wenzel. We'll be back next week for another edition of GreenBiz 350. Until then, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening.